This is Murder Bucket. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Good evening, Murder Bucket family, and welcome back to Tuesday. Tonight we have another installment in our Last Supper series, and if you caught it on social media... Tonight's episode is going to be longer than usual because I really wanted to talk about this specific case in one entire episode instead of breaking it up because it is so interesting. I don't have anything really to talk about for our week slash weekend recap, so we're going to skip it this episode and go ahead and jump right in. Tonight in our Last Supper series, we are discussing the life and crimes of German-born citizen Peter Curtin. Peter Curtin was born on May 26, 1883 in Molheim am Rhein, Germany, to a poverty-stricken abusive family. He was the oldest of 13 children. Both of his parents were alcoholics. Many times while Peter's father was drunk, he would beat his wife and children, force them to assemble before him, order his wife to strip naked, and then have sex with her while the children watched. Peter's childhood got off to an interesting start when in 1888 he attempted to drown one of his playmates. Several years later, he became friends with a local dog catcher and started to join him on his rounds. The dog catcher wasn't as innocent as we would hope. He would often torture and kill the animals that he caught. This intrigued Peter and he eventually joined in the torturing and the killing. Peter, being the oldest child, would often be the target of his father's abuse, both physically and mentally. Because of this, he would often refuse to come home after school. This led to spending more time on the streets in the company of petty criminals and social misfits. Learning these various forms of petty crimes helped keep him fed and clothed. When Peter was 13, he began a romantic relationship with a classmate. She would often allow him to undress her and fondle her, but would push back when he attempted to engage in sex. In order to help with his sexual urges, Peter would engage in bestiality with the sheep, pigs, and goats he found in local stables. According to Vocabulary.com, Bestiality is defined as sex between a human and an animal. Peter later told police that he didn't get much relief from this, but instead got relief from stabbing the animals before achieving an orgasm. In 1897, Peter decided to leave school. His father demanded that he get a job, so he became an apprentice molder. This lasted for two years before he stole all the money from his house and from his employer and ran away from home. He then moved to Coblins and began a relationship with a woman who was two years older than him. Four weeks after moving, he was arrested for breaking and entering and theft and sentenced to one month in jail. He was released in August of 1899 and reverted right back to his petty crimes. In 
Also in 1897, Peter's father was put in jail for 18 months because he sexually assaulted his oldest daughter several times. His mother filed for a separation order from his father and eventually relocated to Dusseldorf. We're going to jump around just a little bit here, but you will understand why. During a confession to police in 1930, Peter told them that he committed his first murder in November of 1899. He told police that he picked up an 18-year-old girl and talked her into driving to Hofgarten. He went on to state that he had sex with her and then strangled her. He believed that he killed her, but in fact, she lived. We're going to jump back into our timeline here. In 1900, Peter was arrested for fraud and almost immediately released. He was arrested again for fraud that same year on charges pertaining to the thefts from 1899 in Dusseldorf and the attempted murder of a girl with a firearm. After going to trial, he was found guilty and sentenced to four years in prison. He served his time at a prison in Derendorf. When he was released in 1904, he was drafted into the Imperial German Army and deployed to the city of Metz in Lorraine. He was supposed to serve in the 98th Infantry Regiment but soon went AWOL. Later that year, he began to commit arson and would discreetly watch from a distance as emergency personnel showed up to attempt to extinguish the fires. Many of these fires were located in barns and haylofts. As a result of going AWOL, Peter went to trial in a military court and was convicted of desertion in addition to multiple counts of arson, robbery, and attempted robbery. He was sent to prison from 1905 to 1913 in Munster. He spent much of his time there in solitary confinement. This is a trigger warning as many of these crimes that Peter commits after he is released from prison in 1913 are described in great detail. The first murder that the police know Peter committed happened on May 25, 1913. While burglarizing a tavern in Mulheim am Rhein, he discovered nine-year-old Christine Klein sleeping in her bed. He strangled her and then slashed her throat twice with his pocket knife. He then ejaculated as he heard the blood dripping from her neck onto the floor. Peter then traveled to a tavern in Köln that was directly across from where he murdered Christine to have a drink. He wanted to listen to the locals discussing the murder and hear their reactions. After Christine's funeral, he often visited her grave and while handling the soil that covered her grave, he ejaculated. Two months after his first murder, he committed several burglaries with the aid of a skeleton key. While breaking into a house in Dusseldorf, he discovered 17-year-old Gertrude Franken sleeping in her bed. He strangled her with his bare hands and began ejaculating at the sight of the blood that spewed from her mouth. He then left. What he didn't realize was Gertrude didn't die. Several days after that night, he thought he killed Gertrude. He was arrested for a series of arson attacks and burglaries. After being convicted, he was sentenced to six years in prison. He served his sentence in a military prison in Brigg. While there, he repeatedly got into trouble and his sentence was extended for two years. He was then released in 1921 and immediately relocated to Altenburg and began living with one of his sisters. He became friends with a sweet shop owner that was three years older than him. Two years after meeting, 
he and the sweet shop owner, Auguste Scarf, got married. It was later discovered that even though they had a great sexual relationship, Peter often fantasized about committing violence against other people while engaging in sex with his wife. After several years of moving around, committing crimes, and being imprisoned, Peter landed a regular full-time job. He became a trades union official. In 1925, he and his wife moved back to Dusseldorf. This is when Peter began to have affairs with a servant girl named Tide and a housemaid named Mech. Both women were forced to be strangled during sex and were told by Peter that this is what love means. When Peter's wife discovered that he was cheating on her, Tide, the servant girl, went to the police and told them that he had seduced her and the housemaid, Mech. Mech told police that she had been sexually assaulted by him. While the allegations of sexual assault were dropped, Tide's allegations were investigated and Peter was convicted and sentenced to eight months in prison for seduction and threatening behavior. He only served six months of the sentence before he was released. He was told that he was unable to move but later appealed that ruling. Peter began stalking a middle-aged woman named Apollina Kuhn on February 3, 1929. He hid behind bushes before jumping out and grabbed her. He dragged her to a nearby undergrowth and stabbed her 24 times with a sharpened pair of scissors. Several of those stab wounds were so deep that they stuck into her bones. Surprisingly, Apollina survived her attack. Five days later, Peter strangled nine-year-old Rosa Oliger until she was unconscious. He then stabbed her in the stomach, temple, genitals, and heart with the same pair of scissors from the previous attack. As she was bleeding, he began to ejaculate. He then inserted semen into her vagina with his fingers. He then attempted to make an effort to hide her body by dragging it beneath a hedge. Several hours later, he returned with a bottle of kerosene and set her body on fire. While she went up in flames, he ejaculated again. Her body was found the next day. Five days after this, Peter murdered 45-year-old Rudolf Scheer in a suburb of Flingen Nord. He was stabbed 22 times in the head, back, and eyes. When police discovered his body, Peter played the part as a witness, telling them that he had heard about the murder on the telephone. Police realized that all three victims had been attacked in the Flingern district of Dusseldorf around dusk, that they all received a multitude of stab wounds inflicted in rapid succession and involved at least one wound to the temple. Peter attempted to strangle four more women between March and July of 1929. All victims are believed to have survived his attack until on August 11th when he sexually assaulted, strangled, and stabbed Maria Hahn to death. While she was being attacked, she begged for her life to be spared. He didn't comply. She died one hour after being attacked. After burying her body, Peter wanted to return to the mock grave later to nail her decomposing body to a tree in a mock crucifixion to shock and disgust the public but while he was attempting to do this, he realized that her body was just too heavy. He ended up just returning her body back to the grave that he had dug. Three months later, Peter sent an anonymous letter to the police station confessing to Maria's murder and included where her remains were buried. He drew a map directly to her location. 
Police were able to locate her remains on November 15th. After the murder of Maria, Peter decided to switch from scissors to a knife for his next attacks in an effort to throw police off of his trail and make them believe that there were multiple suspects. On August 21st, he randomly stabbed an 18-year-old girl, a 30-year-old man, and a 37-year-old woman. None of these attacks were related and they all occurred at separate times and separate locations. Three days later, while walking around a fairground in Flahee, he noticed two sisters, age 5 and 14. He approached them and offered 14-year-old Louise Lindzen money to purchase cigarettes for him. While she was gone, he picked up 5-year-old Gertrude Homacher by her neck and strangled her until she was unconscious. He then cut her throat and discarded her body in a patch of runner beans. When her older sister Louise returned, Peter partially strangled her and stabbed her in the torso. One of those wounds ended up hitting her aorta. While she bled out, he began sucking the blood from her wounds. Neither girl were sexually assaulted. The next day, Peter accosted 27-year-old Gertrude Schlut by asking her to have sex with him. When she rejected him, he shouted, Well, die then! He then immediately began stabbing her in the head, neck, shoulders, and back. She also managed to survive her attack, but was unable to provide the police with a description of her attacker. Peter attempted to murder two other people in September before changing his weapon of choice again. On September 30th, Peter met 31-year-old Ida Reuter at Dusseldorf Station. He was able to persuade her to go to a nearby cafe with him and walk through the local Hofgarten that was close to the Rhine River. When they arrived at the river, Peter struck her in the head with a hammer several times before and after sexually assaulting her. At one point during the attack, Ida regained consciousness and began begging for her life. Peter instead struck her more and more with a hammer until she was dead. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. 11 days later, on October 11th, Peter met 22-year-old Elizabeth Dorier outside a theater. She agreed to join him for drinks at a cafe and then got on a train to Grafenberg. When they arrived, they walked along the Klein Dussel River, which is where he struck her across the temple with a hammer and sexually assaulted her. He struck her across the head several more times. She was found in a coma the following morning and died the next day. On October 25th, Peter attacked two other women with hammers, but they both survived. On November 7th, Peter met five-year-old Gertrude Alberman in Dusseldorf. He persuaded her to follow him to a deserted area where he strangled her, stabbed her in the temple with scissors. When Gertrude fell to the ground, Peter stabbed her 34 more times in the temple than chest. He then placed her body in a pile of leaves. In 1929, the press began calling the unknown murderer the Vampire of Dusseldorf. They received national and international attention, 
Due to the severity of the murders, by the end of the year, police had received well over 13,000 letters from the public with possible leads. Each lead was combed through carefully, and more than 9,000 people were interviewed. 2,650 clues were looked into, and over 900,000 different names were added to a possible suspect list. That seems like a lot of names and a lot of clues that Peter could hide behind, but unfortunately, he got reckless. On May 14, 1930, 20-year-old Maria Budlick was approached by an unknown man at the Dusseldorf station. She was traveling and needed to look for lodging. The man offered to take her to a local hostel and she agreed to go with him. He attempted to walk her through a secluded park, but when she became very upset, the two began to argue. Several witnesses saw this interaction and identified the unknown man as Peter Curtin. Peter then invited Maria back to his apartment to grab a bite to eat. Maria soon realized that Peter wanted to have sex with her and she immediately declined, asking to be taken directly to the hostel. He agreed and began walking her there, but instead of going straight there, he led her into the Grafenberg Woods. There, he attempted to strangle her and sexually assault her. Maria began to scream and was able to get away. Maria never reported this assault to the police, but did tell a friend what happened in a letter. The letter, however, was not addressed correctly, so a clerk at the post office had to open it. While the clerk was reading the letter, they soon realized the severity of the crime, so the clerk brought it to the police. Chief Inspector Gannat believed that the assailant was the Dusseldorf murderer, and he contacted Maria and asked to interview her. She, of course, agreed and recounted the entire evening to him. She led police to her assailant's home, and the landlord of the building confirmed that the tenant was, in fact, Peter Curtin. Peter was not home at the time that Chief Inspector Gannat arrived, but showed up sometime after. When he saw Maria and Chief Gannat in the hallway, he immediately left. Later on, when Peter realized that the police knew his identity and knew that he was potentially connected to the Dusseldorf murders, he confessed to his wife. He begged her to go to the police, tell them that she knew who the murderer was, and collect the reward money so that she could live without worry after he was arrested. So on May 24th, Auguste Curtin went to the police and informed them that although she knew of her husband's past, she did not know that he was capable of murder. She let them know that he had confessed to being the vampire of Dusseldorf. Peter was arrested at gunpoint outside St. Ruckus Church later that evening. After being taken back to the police station, Peter confessed to all crimes attributed to the vampire of Dusseldorf as well as the unsolved murder of Christine Klein and the attempted murder of Gertrude Franken. In total, Peter confessed to 68 crimes that included 9 murders and 31 attempted murders. On April 13, 1931, Peter went to trial in Dusseldorf. He was charged with 9 counts of murder and 7 counts of attempted murder. He pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity to each of these charges. A heavily guarded shoulder-high iron cage was constructed by Peter to sit in during his trial to protect him 
from attack by the enraged relatives of all of his victims. At the beginning of the trial, the prosecution shared the formal confession that Peter had provided to the police following his arrest, as well as sharing in great detail each charge against him. They later asked Peter why he had continued to commit acts of arson throughout 1929 and 1930. This was Peter's response. When my desire for injuring people awoke, the love of setting fire to things awoke as well. The sight of the flames excited me, but above all, it was the excitement of the attempts to extinguish the fire and the agitation of those who saw their property being destroyed. The prosecution went on to share that during his initial confession, he instructed his wife to go to the police and receive the reward money so that she could live without worry. After this was brought up, Peter changed his plea from not guilty to guilty. At one point, Peter was allowed to address the court, and this is what he stated. I have no remorse. As to whether recollection of my deeds makes me feel ashamed, I will tell you that thinking back to all the details is not at all unpleasant. I rather enjoy it. Why don't you understand that I am fond of my wife and that I am still fond of her? I have done many things wrong, have been unfaithful over and over and over. The trial lasted for 10 days. On April 22nd, the jury only deliberated for two hours before reaching a verdict. Peter Curtin was found guilty and sentenced to death on nine counts of murder. He was also found guilty of seven counts of attempted murder. Witnesses in the courtroom stated that Peter displayed no emotion as the sentence was passed. Peter never lodged an appeal of his conviction except for a petition of pardon that was sent to the Minister of Justice. His petition was rejected on July 1, 1931. While in prison, Peter asked the warden if he could write letters of apology to the relatives of his victims and to his wife. This was granted. So what was Peter Curtin's last meal? This is what he asked for. Wiener schnitzel, a bottle of white wine, and fried potatoes. I have to make a confession here. At first glance, I thought the Wiener schnitzel he asked for was the chain fast food place, but then had to reel my brain back in and remember that this was 1931 and he was actually asking for schnitzel that is made of a thin breaded pan fried veal cutlet. I am not a very big fan of veal, so my thoughts on this are I probably wouldn't ask for it. My husband, on the other hand, definitely would because he said he has tried this before and he absolutely loves it. Now let's go on to this bottle of white wine. Yes, please. Now for me, a whole bottle probably wouldn't be my first choice, but if I was on death row and it was my last meal, then sure, why not? But for me in general, I really just drink maybe one glass of wine every couple of weeks. Probably not even that much. Now the real question here is what kind of fried potatoes did he ask for? Were they breakfast potatoes? Were they french fries? Or was it something weird? Because we know how weird he was. Sadly, we will never know. But any potato cooked in any way, I am 100% down with. I love a delicious potato dish. 
It is known that after Peter finished this meal, he asked the guard for a second helping, which he received and also finished. At 6 a.m. on the morning of July 2, 1931, Peter Curtin was walked to the execution area, and before his head was placed on the guillotine, he stated this, Tell me, after my head is chopped off, will I still be able to hear, at least for a moment, the sound of my own blood gushing from the stump of my neck? That would be the pleasure to end all pleasures. Peter was then beheaded via guillotine in the grounds of the Klingelputz prison in Cologne, Germany. Here's an interesting fact and something that's kind of gross. Following his execution, Peter's head was bisected and mummified. The brain was removed and was subjected to forensic analysis in an attempt to explain his behavior. An autopsy was then performed on his body and the medical examiner stated that Peter suffered from no physical abnormalities except for an enlarged thymus gland. Shortly after World War II, Peter's head was transported to the United States, where it is currently on display at the Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum in Wisconsin Dells, Wisconsin. Here are several places where Peter's life and crime show up in pop culture. A film titled The Vampire of Dusseldorf was produced in 1965 and was based on the case of Peter. A film titled Normal was produced in 2009 and it was based on the crimes of Peter. Carl Berg wrote a book in 1937 titled Monsters of Weimar Curtin, The Vampire of Dusseldorf and a book in 1938 titled The Saddest. Douglas Wine wrote a book titled On Trial for Murder in 1996 that depicted Peter's life and crimes. Peter's life and crimes were in a book titled The Great Pictorial History of World Crime, Volume 2, in 2004. And finally, the BBC commissioned a documentary in 2001 upon the murders committed by Peter Curtin titled The Profiles of the Criminal Mind. And that concludes the life and crimes of the vampire of Dusseldorf, Peter Curtin. Thanks for listening. Catch us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for all your murder bucket updates.